0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. My co-host, Michelle Whitty's off today enjoying her vacation. Get ready to go against the grain. Well, I hope everybody's had a good weekend. There's a lot to tell you today, as there is every day. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk about some developments in American politics And about a whole bunch of other stuff, like economics, for example, and immigration. But before we get to those stories, there are some headlines that you should know about. First, there was a major historic political upset in Australia over the weekend. For only the fourth time since the end of the Second World War, a Labour Party candidate has defeated an incumbent prime minister. The Labour Party defeated the Liberal Party, which is actually the Conservative Party. I don't know why they call themselves the Liberal Party. Classical liberals, I guess. And the defeat is seen as a personal rejection of Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who is sometimes called the Donald Trump of Australia. Morrison was known for his mockery of climate science He once carried a lump of coal into Parliament during a debate over climate change. He was known for his sexist language toward women, and he was labeled a liar just recently by French President Emmanuel Macron. Political scientists called Morrison, quote, Australia's first post-truth prime minister, unquote. That hurts. And they said that the man was incapable of telling the truth. Uh, Morrison had said just days before the election that as a Pentecostal evangelical Christian, he was not afraid of losing because God told him that he would win. Well, he must have misheard God because the election wasn't even close. Not so much because the Labour Party did particularly well. It actually didn't. Labour got only 32%. It was because so many Australians voted independent. For the first time ever, the new prime minister is a guy by the name of Anthony Albanese or Albanese. He's the son of Italian and Greek immigrants like the United States. Australia has two main political parties and Australians are tired of that. Let's see if it extends in any way to the United States. Fingers crossed. Just four days ago, after I told you that the government was saying that we shouldn't worry about the spread of monkeypox, Well, the Biden administration is now saying that we should be worried about the spread of monkeypox. That one isolated case that we told you about was in Massachusetts is now more than a half a dozen cases. Not terrible, but it's spreading. More importantly, it has spread to 12 foreign countries where monkeypox is not endemic. The Biden administration and the CDC are now seeking to procure vaccines. These vaccines for monkeypox actually already exist. Um, it's just a question of getting them. So here we go again. You know, interestingly, uh, I've told you before that I'm on this, uh, this mailing list from Liberty University, the Evangelical University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And of course, I've already gotten emails from them saying monkeypox was created in a lab to discredit Republicans and to scare people into voting Democrat, blah, blah, blah. Okay. President Biden is planning his first visit to Israel next month. And what is the Israeli government going to do to prepare for that visit? Well, it's going to throw 1,000 Palestinian families out of their homes on the edge of the Negev Desert so that it can bulldoze the houses to make way for an Israeli army firing range. And just last week, the Israelis threw 4,200 Palestinian families out of their homes on the West Bank to make room for a new Israeli settlement. Some of the guests we've had on our show, like Ariel Gold, Medea Benjamin, and Miko Pellet, warned us that we should not be any more hopeful with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett than we were with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and it appears they were right. A senior member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, a guy by the name of Colonel Sayyad Khodayi, was assassinated yesterday in broad daylight in front of his home in Tehran. Two assassins on motorcycles rode up to his car as he was getting in and buckling his seatbelt, and they shot him five times. He was killed virtually instantly. No person or group has yet claimed responsibility. We likely won't hear a claim of responsibility. But in November 2020, an Iranian nuclear scientist was assassinated in Tehran, and according to both a U.S. official and the Israeli government, the Israelis were responsible. Colonel Khadai had recently returned to Tehran after spending seven years in Syria. So it goes to show you how long the arm of the Israeli Mossad is. If they want to kill someone, they can kill someone, even if that someone is in the center of Tehran. President Biden finished his visit to South Korea with a short statement uh, to the North Koreans. It was this, quote, "Hello." Period. Unquote. That was it. Not something to be terribly optimistic about. And couple that with the fact that the conservatives are back in office in Seoul. The president went on to Japan, where he's meeting with officials there to try to shore up support for his economic plan for the Indo-Pacific. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. And uh, we'll have more on that also tomorrow when we interview K.J. No. Um, I will say that Biden did quietly offer COVID vaccines to the North Koreans and the North Koreans have not responded to that offer. There was a statement from the North Korean government today uh, saying that uh, after initial an initial scare, uh, they've got COVID under control. Don't have any idea if that's true, but that's what they're telling people. Pennsylvania's Democratic Senate nominee, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, was finally released from the hospital over the weekend. He had suffered a stroke, you might recall, a week earlier, and he had a pacemaker installed last Tuesday. Fetterman's wife, Giselle, had been standing in for him at campaign events, and early polls show Fetterman with a huge lead over both possible Republican Senate nominees, Dr. Mehmet Oz and hedge fund billionaire David McCormick. Meanwhile, Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen had a stroke on Friday evening while giving a speech at a political event in Western Maryland. He he had the stroke halfway through the speech, and he actually finished the speech before then getting off the stage and telling his wife, "I think I'm having a stroke." He spent the weekend in a hospital and then was sent home to uh, recuperate. He lives right here in uh, Rockville, Maryland. He said that he feels fine. I hope he does, but I think he's lying. And New Mexico Senator Ben Ray Lujan, also a Democrat, is still recovering from the stroke that he had three months ago. He's only in his 40s. That's certainly an odd set of coincidences. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today. We are going to speak with Dr. Peter Kuznick of American University about the current situation in Ukraine, and he's going to try to put it into context for us uh, vis-a-vis uh, historical battles fought by the Russians. We're going to talk to Mark Schmueli; He is a, an immigration attorney. We're going to talk about this, uh, this decision that was made by a federal judge in New Orleans, Louisiana on Friday. Uh, saying that the Biden administration cannot touch or change Title 42. That's going to be a problem as we approach uh, as we approach midterm elections. We're going to talk to Ted Rawl about a whole bunch of different things, whether it's politics or law and order in New York or Julian Assange. We have a lot on the on the menu with Ted Rawl. And then we're going to talk about the economy and this new Indo-Pacific uh, trade agreement with Steve Grumbine. Uh, he's a, an MMT economist and a popular guest for us. In the meantime, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We've got a full show for you coming up. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriaku here in the studio. Before we get to our next guest, I just wanted to ask, did you guys happen to see this report over the weekend about this, this uh, Ukrainian refugee, this absolutely beautiful Ukrainian refugee who um, went to Poland and uh, was staying with a Polish family? And uh, she kind of took a shine to the, to the husband and uh, then began going to the gym with him. And the next thing you know, after she's been there like, what, one week or 10 days or whatever, the guy leaves his wife and he's going to marry the, the Ukrainian refugee. My God. Kind of reminds me of a time at the CIA when uh, I, went, I went to Afghanistan with a colleague and uh, all of a sudden he falls in love with this With this Afghan woman, we had only been there like two weeks and she's completely covered in a burk on his I was like, "How you don't even know what she looks like. How can you be in love with her? He He went back to the United States and divorced his wife and married the Afghan woman. Okay. Well, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said over the weekend that diplomacy was the only way the war with Russia was going to end. He said that fighting would remain stalemated and that diplomats from both sides had to start doing their jobs. No arguments there. But later in the day, he said that Ukraine would not, under any circumstances, cede territory to Russia. That's going to be tough, in light of the fact that Russia already controls a large swath of Ukraine's east and south. Meanwhile, Polish President Andrzej Duda became the first foreign leader to address the Ukrainian parliament in person over the weekend. He said that Poland would do whatever necessary to ensure that Ukraine was able to join the European Union. But French President Macron said that EU accession for Ukraine, realistically, was 15 or 20 years away. We're joined by Professor Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University here in Washington. He's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books including The Untold History of the United States and Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. Welcome back, Peter. Happy to be with you, John. So glad to have you back. It's been a little while. Um, I want to start with the idea of peace talks. The last time we had you on the show, which was about five weeks ago, you noted that there were no peace talks ongoing and no plans for peace talks. Well, more than a month has passed. Russia has captured additional Ukrainian territory, and there still are no peace talks taking place. Why do you think Zelensky brought this up over the weekend? Was he just talking off the cuff, or was he trying to prepare the public for uh, negotiations?
1: Well, Zelensky, to his credit, has been calling on Putin for direct peace talks, uh, and Putin has been rejecting those, those appeals. So uh, Zelensky has been contradictory in a lot of ways. And his initial call for uh, peace talks, which then he walked back, uh, and he's under pressure. Mm -hmm. We know in the past that he has been threatened with assassination by some of the right wing elements. If he negotiates, if he doesn't uh, prevent – if he – in any way, makes any concessions toward toward Russia. And I think he's still under that kind of pressure oh, at this point. So he's got his own constituencies. And part of the problem is the rhetoric, the rhetoric from the West, as well as inside of Ukraine. This idea that Ukraine is winning, that Ukraine has the potential to not only uh, prolong the stalemate, but to actually take back the territory that had been held by pro-russian elements before february 24th including crimea uh, is a pipe dream that's got no basis in reality however there are many people in ukraine who believe that and the west has been at least the united states and the british have been encouraging them mm-hmm. with the massive military and other aid that's been going and and without any discussion at all about possible diplomatic solutions. We know the reality on the ground is quite different than the reality we're getting from the Western media, that Russia has more than doubled the amount of land that it controls inside of Ukraine, that uh, Ukraine's economy is being devastated compared to even Russia's economy, which has suffered its own losses. The latest figures I've seen is that the estimated loss of GDP in Russia this year Will be about seven percent the initial projections were maybe twice that much but the projection is that ukraine's gdp is shrinking by 45 to 50 percent and it's only going to get worse Uh, and so this idea in the west that this is this tremendous victory for ukraine yeah they're doing much better than people expected they have withstood the early russian invasion uh they did not collapse when Russia approached Kyiv, like people thought they might after three days. Uh, So they have, you can say that they're successful based upon the lower level of expectations for them. But to think that even with this infusion of funds that they're going to defeat the Russians is a very, very dangerous kind of pipe dream now. Uh, Zelensky, I've assumed, knows better than this, but we've seen elements in which uh, Putin has been delusional and things he's been saying and doing, And it's possible that uh, Zelensky and Ukrainian leaders are equally delusional based on the limited successes that they've had so far.
0: You've anticipated at least three of my of my questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) At the start of the war, we saw a lot of reporting about Belarus and the fact that some Russian troops entered Ukraine from Belarus. That would make uh, Belarus a belligerent in the war. And then months passed and we didn't hear anything at all. Now, over the weekend, we saw reports in The New York Times and The Washington Post that some Belarusians have crossed the border into Ukraine independently uh, to fight against Russian troops and then by extension to weaken their own government. That seemed ridiculous to me. It seemed like just a drop in the ocean to me. Is this something that anybody in Russia or Belarus might be worried about? Or is this just a propaganda piece?
1: Well, I was actually in Germany for the last, uh, the past week. So I haven't been keeping up with the Washington Post and the New York Times coverage. Uh, But we know that most of the foreign volunteers that have come to support Ukraine have been, not been very helpful. Very few of them have military training. They've been more mouths to feed for the Ukrainians, uh, and have not really contributed. So I, I would not be concerned that this is going to be a significant factor in the war. Uh, so, so I don't can't discount these reports, but I think that this is the least of Russia's concerns yeah. right now, uh, and and the least of what. Ukraine really needs symbolically it could be significant and they would like to hype that in the propaganda war that's going on and as you know this has largely become a propaganda war yes. there's a lot of fighting as well uh, and and it's amazing the different narratives that, that you get uh, that, that there's very little overlap in the narratives we're getting from the Ukrainians and the Americans and NATO uh as opposed to narratives we're getting from Russia at this point. And both sides are believing their own narratives. My friends in Russia who I've been talking to, uh, many of them fully accept the Russian narrative. Mm-hmm. These are people who I thought would be much more critical, and many of them aren't. Uh, and And what we're seeing is to the extent that people in the West are increasing their rhetoric, uh, and calling for victory and increased support, and uh, and equating Putin with Hitler, and wanting to cancel Russian culture, that is giving Putin more ammunition mm-hmm. to rally the Russian people. Yeah, the Russian people are see are accepting the official government narrative in part because of what the West is saying and doing, which makes. Putin allows him, enables him to rally Russian forces against these people who are trying to destroy Russia, to cancel Russia. So this talk, and, and we see the kind of comments that are that are being made, uh, not only from, uh, well, Liz Truss, the British mm-hmm. Foreign Secretary, has been very, very hawkish in her comments. You know, that what she said: Ukraine's victory is strategic imperative for all of us. Um, we are doubling down. We will keep going farther and faster to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine. Uh, you have similar things. Uh, Jason Crow, the Colorado a Democrat, mm-hmm. congressman, says the United States is not interested in stalemates. We're not interested in going back to the status quo. United States is in this to win it. I mean, We've got Lloyd Austin. We've got these kind of comments that, that make it clear to the Russians that this is a U.S., and NATO proxy sure, war out sure. to destroy Russia. Yeah. And that plays directly into Putin's hands in terms of rallying the public. And and, and that's why his support is around 80 percent support for the war. And so we see the U.S. Western strategy and and, and we look back to what happened with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. When the West was not trying to end that war, the, the, they were saying openly that their goal was to bleed Russia. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing that Austin and others are saying now, using sometimes the same words, that we're to bleed Russia. Well, the people who are bleeding the most, aside from some of the Russian soldiers, are the Ukrainian people. So yeah. This is a humanitarian catastrophe as it is now. But there are people who want to use this. The Turkish foreign minister said back on April 20th, said, I'll quote him, there are those within NATO member states that want the war to continue. Let the war continue and Russia gets weaker. They don't care much about the situation in Ukraine. And so we've seen that kind of cynicism on the part of the big, you know, the cheerleaders for the Ukrainians. Uh, They would love to fight the last Ukrainian here if it weakens Russia. If it strengthens the United States geopolitically and establishes U.S., strengthens U.S. hegemony. And so we're seeing that uh, we see the same kind of tendency and attitude toward U.S. role in China Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So there are people in the United States who see this as the opportunity for the United States to actually create the kind of unipolarity that they've been dreaming about for three decades and that seemed to be the case increasingly between 1990 and maybe 2005. But at that point, the disasters in Iraq and Afghanistan and then Libya undermined that dominance that the US was beginning to assert during the earlier 15 year period. And they want it back. And they see this as their opportunity in part to achieve that. But it's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe that can metastasize and expand. And bring in other countries and create the kind of World War Three scenario that many of us fear. I want to
0: ask you about these these mercenaries. You know, w- the, there was so much of it made in the U.S. press that Malcolm Nance is on the front page of the New York Times with his with his M four with no magazine in it, and uh, we hear about. Uh, British mercenaries and French and there's a Sri Lankan and there's a Japanese and and then in this latest 40 billion dollar aid package, it was revealed to us that it's it's the American taxpayer who's paying the salaries for not just the entire Ukrainian military, but also these these mercenaries that are that are going overseas Um Do these guys, will these guys make any difference at all? Is this really a fighting force or is this something that's just being used to put in front of of Western television news cameras to show that that the Ukrainian side has international support?
1: Uh, uh, my, My sense is that they can be turned into a fighting force if this is the kind of protracted struggle that many people are predicting uh, then these will they will potentially eventually become fighters uh, we, we saw what happened with all the jihadis who flooded into Afghanistan to fight the United States and eventually some of them turned out to be pretty good fighters mm-hmm. so you know, so it's not so it's po- always possible to train people given enough time to To fight, it uh, doesn't require you know rocket science to to become a fighter. And especially we've flooded that country with weapons. yeah, they've got more weapons than they know how to use or even have enough people to use at this point. So not only are we funding the mercenaries, we're massively funding u s uh, defense contractors the people who are making out like bandits this, in this war making enormous profits are the military contractors the defense manufacturers northrop oh, grumman yeah. raytheon yeah. all of those folks direct payments uh, yeah i mean the, the american people are subsidizing them and uh, do they want to uh, do they have a say in this I, I don't know you you get as little honesty from the American media as you do from the Russian media. And and you turn on the television, CNN or MSNBC, I don't know Fox, but probably there too. And it's one admiral in general after another. Yes. There is no dissenting voice, no even moderate voice in the United States who's able to get onto mainstream media at this point. Uh, and, and you know we criticize what's going on in Russia and rightly so. I mean, Russia has been increasingly repressive since this war began. There were previously were a lot of independent voices in Russia. You're not hearing them very much now on Russian media. Uh, but uh, we think about how repressive Russia is during since this began. 15-year sentences for people who condemn the war Mm -hmm. inside Russia, even call it a war, as opposed to a special military operation. Well, if you look at it realistically, they have not been getting 15-year sentences. They've been getting fines or, at worst, a very short jail sentence. So the possibility for serious repression inside Russia, Stalinist-style repression, is still there, uh, but we, we shouldn't exaggerate it. It's been limited so far. And that's partly because, from what I'm gleaning, that while the Russian people support this as a limited military operation in their minds, they are not wildly enthusiastic about this war, mm-hmm. and they do not want to see the kind of mobilization. Many people thought that on Victory Day, Putin was going to announce a full national mobilization. Well, he didn't do it. And he didn't do it partly because there really is no stomach inside Russia for that. Yeah. And so, uh, hopefully, the there are you know there are some people inside Russia who are far more hawkish than Putin is, some who say let's go there and take all of Ukraine, let's put in all of our forces and mobilize and go after Kiev, and you know, but Putin has carved out more of a middle position now. So if retreated from Kiev. Uh, he's pulled the. Uh, he's, now he's gone after the Donbass. Basically, the outlines of what the Italians called for a few days ago, right, as a basis for a peace settlement, right, uh, is something that I think Putin should be able to accept. And, and so Zelensky says he's not going to allow any territorial concessions to Russia. Well, I'd like to see them go back to the Minsk II agreement, you know, and and let that area stay part of Ukraine, but extremely uh, autonomous Mm -hmm. and can effectively be what Putin said in the beginning that he wanted. Uh, And Ukraine will become neutral. It won't join NATO. And uh, the Russian troops will withdraw. And we go back to something that gives both sides, both sides can claim victory. What I was saying after the, the, the troops surrendered the Azov battalion, and the others surrendered at Mariupol. That this was a chance for Putin to claim victory and end the fighting. Uh, and I mean, and, and we're going to get to some kind of solution along those lines. So whatever rhetoric we're hearing from both sides. Uh, but part of the problem is that the U.S. has got no real interest. The U.S. leaders do not have an interest in ending this. They see this as an opportunity. At least some of them do. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Biden seems to have fallen into that camp. Yeah, he does. The same kind of thing with his comment this morning about uh, China and, and Taiwan, that we're going to defend Taiwan militarily if if China moves against them. I mean, Biden has bought into the most hawkish elements within his, within his administration. We know that there are 16 top advisors from the Center for New American Security. These are the newest version of the American hegemonists, and they seem to have captured uh, Biden. Uh, well, he put them in there, so he created the conditions for being captured by them. And But at least with Obama, we saw some resistance. And some pushback. And even Biden was a voice of sanity at times within the Obama administration. Yeah, right. He's not playing that role now as, as president.
0: He was supposed to be the the adult in the room uh, for he so was, long. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, you've touched on several different things here. First, I want to ask you about uh, the situation here in the United States, especially in the U.S. Congress, where we're seeing an increasing number of Republicans uh, drop out of of votes to continue funding uh, the war. Uh, there mm-hmm. seems to be a fight inside the Republican Party between these populists who are opposed to foreign entanglements and the neocons that have, for so many years, run the Republican Party. The problem is, uh, for those of us who consider ourselves to be anti-war, Is that the Democrats have jumped in with both feet and the Democrats are at least as pro-war as the Dick Cheney's of the Republican Party have always been. Uh, Do you see this changing in any way? What what exactly are we looking at here in this fight uh, among the Republicans? Does it matter when so many Democrats
1: support military involvement overseas? We hear very, very little dissent. Among Democrats, very even little. progressive Democrats, yes, uh, even the Bernie Sanders of the party have not been very anti-war <laughs> in their messaging since this. And one of the things that's, that makes me uncomfortable about the Republicans is that many of the Republicans who have been seemingly voices of reason on Ukraine – are the most vile anti democratic, pro fascistic elements <laughs> within the Demo- Republican Party right. trying to overthrow the election? So, you know, so, um, you know they, I, I, I wish we could figure out a way to get the Democrats to walk back from this idea that the only way to support Ukraine is by piling more and more arms. Uh, they can't get any funding for progressive policies here in the United States for the kinds of things that Americans need. But there's no limit to how much most of these people are willing to spend to continue killing in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, You know, they don't see it that way, of course. They see it as a great, glorious fight for democracy and that the Russians are aggressors and need to be stopped. But these people who are, you know, not, not, I agree that this wasn't, terrible what russia did that this is war crimes that that you know that this is unconscionable and and russia cannot be in any way rewarded for for this uh, but uh, the democrats are into this idea that russia has got to be defeated and has got to pay this enormous price and that the military's got to be supported there And I don't know where this is coming from, the Democrats, because they have some understanding of the history. You know, the the United States is the one who's been the global aggressor, as Jimmy Carter says. What do you say? He says of our whole history, we've had, what, 16 years when we've been at peace in the United States? that's right. And And so for a long time, we were talking about the United States as being the great aggressor internationally. But these people didn't call for sanctions against the United States they didn't call for defeating the United States, leading the United States, regime change in the United States. It's not what these people were calling for. But now when it comes to Russia, this idea, and this was so dangerous about equating Putin with Hitler because you don't sit down and negotiate with Hitler. Right. And uh, uh, and all you want to do is destroy that kind of Nazi mentality. So both sides in this war accuse the other of being Nazis. Both sides of this war accuse the other of of genocide. Both sides accuse the other of war crimes. And what we're going to see is just continuing catastrophe, humanitarian catastrophe in Ukraine. So for these Democrats, if they really want to see any kind of progressive reform in the United States, want to end this war have got to push biden on a diplomatic course why is it the italians who come out with a peace plan where have you heard the word peace come out of biden's mouth i haven't heard it i haven't seen anything that represents a diplomatic off-ramp coming from the united states yeah which should have done this stuff beforehand should have said yeah neutrality makes sense for ukraine Uh, And then a lot of other things that could have possibly prevented this before this even started. My sense is that there were Americans who saw this the same way that Brzezinski saw the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, Mm -hmm. which Brzezinski took credit for. Right, He said, this is great. Now we've given Russia its own Vietnam. And I think there were many people also in this Biden administration who encouraged this. I mean, why did they know? Why were they so sure that Russia was going to invade? What kind of signals were they sending to Russia about an anticipated uh, offensive against the Donbass by the Ukrainians? I don't know that. We're not going to know that for years. But uh, they were certainly confident that Russia was going to invade at a time when most of us were saying that, no, no, Putin is not that stupid and not that vicious and uh, they were right, (laughs) and we were wrong. Putin was that stupid, and I think Russia is paying the price now for Putin's Mm -hmm. stupidity uh, and falling for the bait that he was being given. This was a policy that many Americans wanted to see. They wanted to see this invasion. As much as they cried crocodile tears and bemoaned what was happening inside Ukraine, they were thrilled by this, just as they were thrilled in 1979 and broke out the champagne then. Uh, But I thought that Putin was too smart to go for that bait.
0: One final question, Peter. You've studied Russia and the Soviet Union for many years. You're an acknowledged expert on the history of the region. What can you tell us from an historical perspective about how this war will be resolved? Certainly, Russia is stronger than Ukraine. It has nuclear weapons. It has a much larger military. Uh, But in many ways, this is more like a civil war than
1: other wars Russia has fought. Uh, Well, Putin talked about the Ukrainians and the Russians being one people. Yeah, he sure did. Everybody in Russia and Ukraine seems to have relatives on the other side, although many of them are not talking to each other now. (laughs) I mean, this is not the way you treat a brother country. You don't invade. And you, you know some of these reports about the war crimes and the atrocities being committed and the leveling of cities and the brute force being used... I mean, you, this is the kind of thing you would do against your worst enemy who you hated, not a country you see as your mm-hmm. brothers brother. who you want to be part of one country with. I, I don't know what the Russians are thinking there. It doesn't make any sense, just as their policies make no sense in expanding NATO. I mean, they've had – backfired. They've had the exact opposite effect than than any this sane Russian thinker would have wanted. Um, so this is going to end with negotiations. Zelensky is right when he says that that's the case. We know approximately what those negotiations are going to be. And and if the Ukrainians think that by dragging this out, they're going to be able to remove Russia from entrenched positions in the Donbass, they're deluding themselves. So this is going to end somewhere with Russia having taken most of the Donbass uh, have that land bridge to Crimea and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I w- what I don't want to see is us sitting down to negotiate a year from now with 100,000 more people dead That's right. and the possibility of World War Three and negotiate the same terms that we could have now. It's similar to Vietnam. We could have had very similar terms uh, b- when, when Nixon was... Uh, Nixon was elected in 19, early 1969 when he took office, mm-hmm. that we ended up having four years later with many million, a couple more million people dead. That's right. Well, I don't want to see that happen in this war. So let's negotiate, let's figure it out, and let's let both sides claim victory and go get back to the real hard task of rebuilding Ukraine. Um, Russia seems to be decoupling from the West. But it's interesting that so few people in other parts of the world, so few countries are going along with Western sanctions. You know, and we see almost nothing in the global South, nothing in Latin America, nothing in most parts of Asia, although Biden is there now in South Korea and Japan trying to mobilize. But look at what happened in Australia. You know, uh, yes. the victory of the Labour Party forces in Australia is a major strategic geopolitical change. Yeah, sure we is. see India and Modi refusing to go along with the Western sanctions and the Western line on, on this war. And, you know, so we're going to see a new kind of realignment now and uh, which it, we, I would much rather see a way to work peacefully with Russia and China, and to try to reintegrate them, indeed, not into a U.S.-dominated system, but into a, a, a more peaceful kind of global architecture.
0: That was the voice of Professor Peter Kuznick, who joined us from Washington. He is a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books, including The Untold History of the United States, and Beyond the Laboratory, scientists as political activists in 1930s America. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you, John. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. A federal judge in Louisiana on Friday blocked the Biden administration from lifting a public health order that immigration officers have used to quickly expel migrants at the southwest border, including asylum seekers. District Judge Robert R. Summerhays, a Trump appointee in Lafayette, ruled that the Biden administration violated administrative law when it announced in April that it planned to halt Title 42, a health order aimed at preventing the spread of communicable diseases in the country, on Monday. That's last Monday. The ruling will most likely spark a months-long legal battle. The U.S. Department of Justice quickly filed an appeal Friday with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and said it believes that the Biden administration decision to lift 42 was legal. We're joined by immigration attorney Mark Schmueli. is the immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. I guess the most obvious question is what refugees can do to ensure their legal rights when they arrive at the border. We have longstanding laws in this country that allow people seeking refugee status to enter the country to apply and to be processed. Uh, the Trump administration ended that. The Biden administration tried to reimplement it, and now this federal district court judge has stopped it. How long do you think this is going to take to wind its way through the courts?
2: Well, just to to, to clarify, um, the decision last week was was just a um, a stay of the order while um, uh, the merit uh-huh. case are are being adjudicated. And um, okay. And so this so this is a, a case brought by, you know, about half of the states, which is how immigration cases are done. And they're all states. Um, I believe Louisiana is the only might be the only state that has a Democratic governor. But they're all states that um, that Trump won, except for Virginia. And they have a recent. Um, yeah. and That's a result of their recent election was put in Glenn Youngkin. So that's the you know, the, that's the um, the the uh, just the background. Um, so it it's it's gonna take uh, you know, some time, you know, on the merits. Um just to answer your, your earlier question of how can they do that? And how can people how can we be in a country where we guarantee people freedom, um and uh where we get guarantee people the ability to apply for asylum and to be free from persecution. Um and this does uh certainly it 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 puts it puts a, a hole in that because people have to wait in Mexico. They there was right. last month that you can't send them back to their countries. You can't actually remove them. They can and there are agreements made with Mexico, but um having been to the border just before the pandemic, um, I can tell you that very that the many, many parts of the border are very uh dangerous. Uh we've seen people being attacked, living on the streets. Mexico is you know, trying to, you know, shelter them et cetera, but it's, it's a horrible situation. And, and I've seen personally people, you know, they been my clients who are uh, traumatized, very traumatized, come back much different um, than even people in immigration detention um, through this. And so the, yeah, they, they go to court in the, in the U S but they have a court like right on the border. It's a tent court Mm -hmm. and they do not have access to counsel unless that, that counsel goes across the border and there, um, They don't have. uh, It's it's an international phone call to call an attorney, um, and it's it's not as if there are immigration attorneys on that side or you know nonprofits or other resources. So this is a a, a glaring. um, uh, uh, It's a glaring violation of international law.
0: Well, let me ask you about that because you raise a very important issue here. What what happens if you're an intending refugee? On the border, right? and and the rules for refugees are different from the, the rules of you know economic uh, migrants. Do they just sit in a in a no man's land uh, on the border or on the Mexican side of the border and and hope that they can get in touch with a, an attorney to help them negotiate this process? Uh, what happens if they can't get in touch with an attorney, or if that an attorney's denied them or they're denied entry? They they can't really go back. I mean, the refugees for a reason. They can't go back because their lives might be in danger. Uh, they're targeted for crime or, or whatever the reason is. Do they just stay in that no man's land forever?
2: Well, under just uh, I, I, under Title Forty Two, due to the uh, public health risk to the United States under Title Forty Two, which I have to say that at the time that it was enacted. Mm-hmm. Beginning of the pandemic, sure. Um, Robert Redfield and I, and I mentioned this last week when, when I was a couple weeks ago when I was in the program, um, another program. The um, uh, Title Forty Two, but uh, Robert Redfield, the CDC did not feel that it was necessary, and the administration, uh, specifically, uh, it's reported that it was uh, Vice President Pence leaned on them to come up with this conclusion. Oh, Th- there never was this conclusion. Just like there was never really a ban on traveling into the United States from, uh, uh, countries. And there certainly isn't now, as long as you have the negative, certainly not since vaccines have come around. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's no chance for people who you could be vaccinated four times and, um, have a negative test and you're, you're, you're still not, uh, admissible to the U S Unless you're a child, and so um, you will wait in Mexico. You will hope you, the rates of representation are much lower. Um, there's been, you know, reports that uh, the studies that have been done, of course, are going to be rudimentary. But the studies that have been done show that the people in those that go to those courts have a much, much slimmer chance of getting asylum. Wow! Because they, they, they just even if they see an attorney to prepare a case to get the documentation to have um, you know, the, the the work that an attorney or an agency or whomever is assisting them can do, uh, it really can't be done with a mobile device visiting somebody in a um, shelter or even a makeshift outdoor campsite.
0: What, if anything, is Congress doing to address this problem? We read about these incidents on the border. Uh, when we read about court cases that seem to be pending all the time, but we don't see much, or maybe we don't see anything in the way of legislation or even debate. Is there anything happening on Capitol Hill?
2: Um, on this, there's talk, but there's not, and there's, and there are certainly movements, but the, the problem is, is that the Senate is 50, 50 and, and this and I can you know there were at least two senators, there were three senators two running for re-election Maggie Hassan and 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 Kelly out of um Mark Kelly out of Arizona mm-hmm. specifically supported this decision and the extension of Title 42 so there you've got you know a 52 to 48 deficit for the Democrats and there's no Republican that supports um i i the end right. of Title 42, um, which is interesting because everywhere it, – it, the, the misuse of this and really the um, – where it is so illogical is, is is that the same argument that's used for any overrunning of, of state resources. that was used for DACA when they said that if you give these kids, mm-hmm. you know, young adults – DACA, they're going to strain the resources of the state. This is the argument they're using. They're not saying that they're really going to present, prevent a, present a public health risk because there's no data to show that. What they're saying is that it's going to strain the resources of the states because when you lift it, a floodgate is going to open. And yeah, that is going to happen because people are sitting on the other side because of the backlog that's been uh, mm-hmm. people sitting there and some have gone back. So, you know, that's going to happen, but, um, the answer isn't to con, the answer to nothing else is to continue restrictions. Um, I mean, I don't see these folks saying that we need to have fewer people in stadiums or fewer people in schools or more spacing. Yeah. Or right. Good point. Vaccinations or, you know, airplanes half full. <laughs> I don't see that. I know you do. Um,
0: No, that's a good point. Hey, one of the things that I didn't understand when I when I read about this decision um, over the weekend, uh, I was hoping you could explain this. The judge said that the Biden administration had violated an administrative law. Um, Can you explain to us what administrative law may have been violated if the refugee law has been on the books for so many decades? What administrative law might trump that?
2: it's not it's not the, the 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 law itself it's the procedures of how um of how this was done, so what they're saying is is that it was lifted without a notice you know there's a the administrative procedures act is it you know is a very long uh you know act which states how it basically says that agencies can't issue regulation or policies without um, without public input without review um and they're, what they're saying is, and, and this is really an executive order even though it, it's kind of this hybrid between the executive order and an administrative order because it is the executive branch but mm-hmm. it comes out of the uh, uh CDC so the, what what they're saying is is that you know they didn't allow, allow um I mean it's a pretext because when it was put in it was not it wasn't presented with uh, uh it, it followed the same process it's a pretext but you know doesn't take much to get these, you know, judges that were, uh, you know, appointed um, to, to make um, inconsistent findings. Right. Founded by Trump.
0: The judge said in his ruling that lifting Title 42 would cause irreparable harm. Those were the words he used. Because the states would have to spend money on health care, law enforcement, education, and other services for migrants and refugees. How is that different from any other time in American history? Why Why would it be different now, different to the point where this judge felt he needed to act on it?
2: Um, I mean, that's a pretext, and it really has yeah. nothing to do with the health issue. This is a strict health issue. And also, it's not only a pretext, but it's just wrong. I mean, uh, there is no question that right now there is a shortage of labor.
3: Mm-hmm
2: people coming uh, the the idea it 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 is again you know the racist idea which it, it's only is it racist but it's also um just wrong that immigrants are 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 takers rather than givers to the economy very very little um i mean there's a lot of mutual aid going on for people when they first get here but the 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 rapidity of self-sufficiency of recent immigrants um is is astounding, and that's true in Texas, and it's true in Arizona, and it's true in Michigan, and it's true in you know every other part of the country. So that's just wrong, um, you know, on a factual basis. It's wrong.
0: I have to ask you too. Th- this seems to me to be something that's going to have to be resolved in the end in the in the policy arena rather than in the legal one. Uh, and, and I think it's because the policy is so difficult and uh, so contentious. Uh, Do you see this being resolved at some point in the near future, or is this something that the government is going to just have to muddle through regardless of of who's in the White House?
2: I mean, I can can say this. I mean, as much as the—it's going to have to muddle through, but it's also going to have to take leadership, and it's going to have to tell people that, you know, I mean, you know, Mark Kelly— you represent who do you want to represent as you're running for re election what do you want to be because we we know that um we know that when people stand for something and and there's one thing Donald Trump taught us is that when you stand for something and you stick with it, people who otherwise wouldn't vote for you will 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 respect that and when you um when you are afraid to stick up for what is what is right, um, and and not only right morally but right for your community, then you. I mean, you know, we saw that with Black Lives Matter. It's got to take that, right. and I think otherwise you look muddled. Because I'll tell you what, one side is not muddled on this. Those twenty-six states aren't muddled. Uh, their messages is 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 is, is r- racist. Their messages. Is just wrong. Um, I mean, it's wrong morally, but it's also wrong factually and and has no data. And it it puts the United States in a situation of violating international law. But it's consistent, as you were saying, like, well, I was saying in in every other instance, um, this is their argument and they throw it out. and It's consistent. And the fact that, you know, in this case, the Democrats, the administration, you know, does not have a doesn't believe that the population will that is politically expedient to really oppose it and be yeah. clear. Yeah. It's just, it's harmful. It's harmful to, to the communities and it's harmful to, it's harmful to their own party.
0: Indeed it is. I think uh, I think that I agree with every word you you said. I couldn't have put it better myself. We're going to have to leave it there. We were joined by immigration attorney Mark Mark Schmoeli. He's the immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a whole nother hour. That's not really a word, but stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. My co-host, Michelle Witties on vacation today. We're seeing an increasing number of demonstrations around Washington expressing concern for and solidarity with WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. I know because I participate in every single one of them. What we're waiting to see is whether British Home Secretary Priti Patel will make a decision about whether or not to extradite Julian to the United States, where he would stand trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, the notorious espionage court. Patel is widely expected to allow the extradition to go forward. Julian could still appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, but the British government already has said that they will not delay the extradition if that court were to agree to hear the case. We'll talk with our next guest about what a coordinated response to the extradition might look like, as well as a whole bunch of other interesting issues. We're joined by Ted Rawl, award winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. Always good to have you, Ted. Let's start with the state of play surrounding Julian Assange. We're waiting uh, patiently, maybe impatiently, for Pretty Patel's decision. She's made no indication that she has ever opposed Julian's extradition. Uh, when do you think we might expect for her to finally pull the trigger?
4: Uh, that decision could come any time, but I, I'm i pessimistic. I don't think yeah. this is going to go well. Yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, the nature of the uh, U.S.-U.K. alliance is such that, uh, you know, Britain is pretty much still uh, Tony Blair, uh, you know, rest in peace, uh, is still uh, the poodle of the United States. Yeah. And uh, they will will deliver him upon demand on a silver platter.
0: I hate to say, but I think you're right. I think that um, this is something that even if the British were to disagree with the United States about, which they don't, uh, it still wouldn't be important enough for them to upset the alliance, upset the friendship by uh, standing up and saying, no, we're not going to extradite him. Uh, I, I yes, just see I, no I, cause for optimism.
4: In a weird way, Brexit plays into this. I think if uh, the UK were still part of the European Union, uh, the EU has a very has a I think has more pro-Assange Probe uh, free press yeah. sentiment, uh, and uh, mo- you know, uh, continental Europeans are much more upset and agitated uh, at the grassroots level over what's happening to Assange than Britons are. I think uh, if that w- if they were part of the EU, they'd be feeling the heat from Brussels, but they're not. And I think because of that, uh, you know, the alliance, the the, the U.S., the old U.S.-U.K. World War II era alliance just sort of continues.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. One of the great disappointments in this case is the fact that Julian has virtually no support in the mainstream media. Without a doubt, the media will be out in front of the courthouse during the trial to cover it. But why do you think American journalists can't see the connection between what's happening to Julian and what would inevitably happen to them if he were to be convicted of a crime? In my, in my view, Ted, there's literally nothing to protect the national security reporters from The Washington Post, The New York Times, from, from any other you know newspaper or outlet in America uh, if they were to reveal ostensibly classified information.
4: Well, John, I think at first glance uh, this appears it's a puzzling development. The stance of the mainstream media, mm. um, because you know, I mean, what is really the difference between Deep Throat uh, giving stuff yeah. to Woodward and Bernstein yep. uh, at the in a, in a parking garage at the in Washington and having it published in the Washington Post, and what and then someone uploading documents and other files? Up to WikiLeaks, and then having those documents be published on WikiLeaks, and in some cases, then reproduced in, say, the Washington Post. And there kind of isn't really a lot of difference. But I think two things have changed dramatically. Number one, uh, the media has become far more corporate, far more, uh, far less independent, mm-hmm. um, and it's far more elitist. I mean, uh, you know, the hiring practices of the media today. I mean, you know, fifty years ago. Uh, reporters were hired from the working class they started out as stringers 16 year old 16 year old kids um, often without even a high school diploma um, and then uh, you know now you pretty much to go to an elite uh, institution like CNN you have to come out of like Columbia journalism mm-hmm. school there's no financial aid it's very expensive so only rich kids go but I think also, Corporate ownership, I mean, you know, you, you don't have like a William Randolph Hearst or, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, the, the uh, I forget her name, who owned the uh, – who was the publisher of the Washington Post. Uh, um, Catherine Graham. Graham. Catherine Graham, right. Uh, and, you don't know, have a Catherine Graham who, you know, as timid and connected as she was, was still had – ultimately had the oomph to be – even though yeah. it was a publicly traded company, still had the oomph to, uh, to be able to control things. You know, Jeff Bezos can control things, but you know that's an exception. At the Washington Post, uh, most most of these papers are owned by conglomerates. Yes. So I and they're so and they're tied in deep with the security state. And um, you know, I think that's part of it. And I think the big game changer is the fact that psychologically, um, Heath uh, Assange represents a sort of wild, free-range. Uh, punk rock approach to journalism that these uptight corporate suits do not appreciate. Yeah. He's a disruptive force against their business model. I mean, he's just a dude from Australia with a website and some coding ability, yeah. and he's able to get scoops uh, that they can't get. So there's a, you know, I think that, I think he, he bugs them, his style, his swashbuckling. buckling uh, approach, uh, you know, the fact that he can't be pigeonholed politically, Yes, you know, like, is he a leftist or a a rightist? I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) you you know, so, and I don't think anyone else knows either. So I think he doesn't fit, you know, he's just, he's a, he's a free radical and Mm -hmm. he bugs them and he they don't like the cut of his jib. And sometimes it comes down
0: to that. Oh man. I think you've hit it on the head. I want to switch subjects. If I could, Ted, and uh, ask you about the transformation of the Republican Party from a neoconservative party to one that's actively populist and, in my opinion, potentially dangerous. Um, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene gave an interview over the weekend in which she called for the government to stop investigating white supremacists because she said it showed a bias against white people. I mean, it's the craziest thing. I actually had to watch the interview twice because I couldn't believe, like my brain couldn't process what it was that I was hearing. Um, She said something that has largely become a mainstream Republican view. So as a country, how do we resolve this? There's talk of the Republican Party breaking up, uh, but there's no indication that that's going to happen in the foreseeable future. How, How do we get... Past this, it seems like this party has moved so far right as to be untenable over the long term.
4: Well, the problem is that the Democrats are, are chasing them to the yes, right. They uh, are, especially especially on foreign policy, um, and uh, and also on free speech. There is, I don't think we do get out of this. I think uh, this situation continues. I mean, look uh, objectively. If you're a Republican, you have to be Trumpism. And you know, Marjor- Marjorie Taylor uh, Green comes out of Trump is a Trumpy. Yep. Um, Trump Trumpism has been very good for the GOP. It reinvigorated yeah. Yeah, a true. party that uh, was suffering from demographic losses. It brought millions of, of non-voters into the fold as voters. Um, it, it, it created a level of, of energy that wasn't there before. I mean, the Country Club Republicans are dead. The, Repo- the, yeah. um, the corporate Republicans are, you know, hanging on because, they after all, they're sitting on top of a lot of money. But in the end, you know, the party activists, they're going to come from the Trump wing. I don't think this is going to change. I think it's going to continue to move in that direction. I think, uh, you know, just watch this. Uh, things are going to get pretty crazy next year when the Republicans are running Probably – well, certainly running the House and probably the Senate as well. Right. Uh, the Demo- – you know, right now, if I'm a Republican, I'm very happy about 2024. The Democrats don't have any obvious candidate to run. No. Um, you know, they, they, they certainly – their president's not – I mean, you know, the president's turning 80 years old and he looks 100. Yes. Um, he's uh, – the, the, the vice president – is insanely unpopular. The only thing she's in charge of is immigration, and they literally have taken immigration away from her. She hasn't had a single <laughs> immigration-related any uh, event no. since last summer. No. Um, so uh, you know who, who do they got? Who do they have? I mean, you know, and they they, they they've like driven nail guns through their progressives. So they've got yeah. so you know the, the Republicans, are, the Republican Party has you know it ain't as far as they're looking at things. Nothing's broke, so there's nothing to fix.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right. You know, and I I think about this kind of thing all the time. Uh Joe Biden is a, is an old man. There's just no two ways about it. He he frequently appears to be confused. Uh he says things that make it uh sound like he's confused. Uh the vice president is is grossly unpopular. The poll numbers have Joe Biden in Jimmy Carter territory. Uh, And we know how that worked out for Jimmy Carter in 1980. Uh, There's no deep bench for the Democrats, not like what the Republicans have, where everybody wants to run for president. So, yeah, I'm not sure where where the Democrats go. I, I think that there's no good news for the Democrats in redistricting, even in states like New York, for example, where they thought they they could even pick up three seats until a court said, no, no, this is unconstitutional. You can't do this. It's not working out anywhere for the Democrats, nowhere. And I suppose there's a there's a small chance they could hang on to the Senate, but the House is gone. And, um, and even in the Senate, you know, it was funny. Just last week, uh, Kamala Harris complained that there was so much that she wanted to do as vice president. She wanted to get out of town. She wanted to travel and go overseas. But she can't because... Uh, she has so many 50-50 votes in the Senate that she has to break. I think it's been like 11 so far, which is a record for the first 18 months of an administration. Anyway, um, I want to ask you also, Ted, about Ginny Thomas. This is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. We've learned over the past several weeks that Ginny Thomas was actively involved in trying to overturn, overturn the 2020 election. She was in close touch with White House officials like Mark Meadows, for example, and with Republican lawmakers to try to convince them to deny President Biden's election and to block the Electoral College vote in Congress on um, what was it, January 6th. Jeannie uh, Thomas is not some random nut. Uh, she is an attorney. She's the former general counsel for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So she's a serious, important attorney. At least she used to be. Past Supreme Court justices, and Abe Fortas leaps to mind immediately, have resigned for far less than what we've heard so far about Ginny Thomas. Why do you think Clarence Thomas is getting a pass on this? And how do you think it'll play out? As an an aside, Clarence Thomas lamented in an interview last week that was picked up and carried everywhere, uh, the fact that Americans don't trust the Supreme Court. And he can't understand yeah. why. What do you think? Yeah.
4: Uh, well, I, I think there's two things going on, John. Uh, I, first of all, I think that it's the marriage and uh, it, I think it's a race issue. And I'll start with the marriage thing. First of all, uh, you know, there's, it's very tricky when you have conflicts of interest that arise from a spouse. You know, Clarence Thomas himself is not directly implicated in January 6th. Right. But come on. She's he, his wife, and they don't have. They're not estranged. They're close, by all accounts. Oh they yes, adore each other. Uh, their their marriage is in fine shape. Uh, and clearly they're they're close political partners. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, are you supposed to mention the fact that Andrea Mitchell is married to Alan Greenspan? Right. I yeah. Mean, right. I think you are supposed to mention that. But, you know, in polite official Washington, you don't. And I so I think it's kind of like, well. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the the queen is up to no good, but the king remains uh, at, at this point unscathed. I think that's part of it. I think it's ridiculous. But, I, I, you know, that is what's going on. Um, and then I think perversely, uh, Democrats don't want to be seen as going after, uh, you know, the African-American justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, never mind that he's a right wing conservative. Um, they, I think, if, you know, in an in a, in the age of uh, a very woke age, uh, it's a bad look for them, and I, th- I think they don't know what to do. I think even if they had him dead to rights, it would be tough for them to figure out, you know, going after him, like uh, you know, maybe censuring him or maybe even impeaching him, which has happened. Yeah, it, you know, there's a historical precedent for that. Um, so, and certainly people have been impeached for less, as you know, as as you pointed out. So. You know, it's it is a little ridiculous, but I think they just it's kind of just hasn't gotten to the point where they think they you know they can and have to uh, you know go after him. But you know, if I were them, I would uh, you know po- the politics of it would be great. Not only could you get rid of a conservative, you could replace him with a liberal oh, and yeah. re- and. And you could do some serious, you know, partisan battle and really energize progressives during a during a election year when progressives are not going to show up.
0: And in fact, that's what happened with Abe Fortas. Abe Fortas was forced to resign. It was the very tail end of the Johnson administration. The Senate couldn't get its act together and they ended up uh, not passing or not uh, approving uh, a Johnson appointee and Nixon got the the spot. So, yeah, there's there's an historical precedence for it. It's uh, it's happened in the past. It could happen again.
4: I just don't think it will. I don't think think, it will either. I think Thomas is safe as long as it's not him. And even if it's proven to be him, it's going to have to be very, very solid. um, Yeah. Really just damning evidence. And And, and we're not seeing that. Yeah, there's there's enough plausible deniability here. So I, I, I I suspect.
0: I think I think you're right, Ted. I have to ask you about law and order issues in New York. Those of us who don't live in the city read the papers, and it looks like there's there's a war going on in the streets. A, another person was murdered in the subway yesterday in an unprovoked attack. They have no idea why this guy just pulled out a gun and shot a Goldman Sachs employee in the back. Why the spike in crime and what's Eric Adams doing about it?
4: Well, the why is puzzling. Uh, during the pandemic, this, the, uh, the theory was that uh, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of teenagers out on the street and out of school. Uh, but that's not true. You know, kids are back right. in school. Uh, certainly the, the city is awash in guns, but that's not particularly new. The one theory that I've heard uh, recently, I was talking uh, to a few people in the know who are, you know, half my age and therefore are much more connected to, uh, more hip to the concerns of today's youth, is that there is a major cocaine uh, epidemic on oh. the streets of New York City right now, uh, and it's cheap. It's not the coke from the 1980s that, uh, you know, the kids I went to Columbia with we all we all using that and snorting 100 or 200 dollars a day of their, of their parents' money. This is cheap cocaine. Laced with fentanyl. And, oh my. Uh, and, it's, and so it's sort of like a crack light type scenario where, you know, it's like if everybody's stoned on weed or they're doing uh, heroin, those are depressants. They're not going, you know, they're not doing any, they're not, they're not violent. But this is a drug, a, a drug combination, a cocktail that makes some people violent and crazy. Um, and I think that's what I, I think that's the best theory I've heard so far. There's a lot of this crap on the street. You're starting to see public service announcements pop up about it. So you know that if city government is finally on top of it, uh, it must have been around for years. Um, in terms of what the new mayor is doing, nothing as far as I can tell, except he likes to give press conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and I love the fact that he's yelling at the cameras as if. Someone else was supposed to do something about this. Uh, dude, yell at yourself. You're the mayor. Um, it's like, get out there and, and like, you know, you're a former cop. Yell at your co- at your former colleagues. Um, you know, get them down into the subways. There are no police in the subways. The subways are a hellhole. Uh, there's, you know, in the 80s, which was a, as dangerous, if not more dangerous uh, than now – there were there was a, a separate transit police department. At uh, at night, there was one or two police officers on every on every train in the system. To, uh, at all times, uh, there was a uh, you know it, it was just it was a, a far more connected um, you know presence. Now there's no transit police. There are no cops. Wow. Oh, by the way, we, we, there's, no, there's no evidence that there are undercover cops in the, in the system anymore either. I mean you used to see them. I remember one time sitting on the train and this woman appeared to be pregnant and uh, suddenly I hear, I hear this crackle of a radio and she pulls out her shield from under her thing, ditches the fake uh, pregnancy bump oh. and like, goes, pulls her gun and goes running from into the next car. I was oh. like, that's awesome. I want to see more of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we don't we don't have that. Um, you know, it's there's just no police. Um, and the police do serve as a deterrent. This is one of you know, most cities in this country have way too many cops who are basically sitting around their their main. Uh, mm-hmm. All they ha- all they're up to is writing speeding tickets and beating up black people. But in right. New York, we need cops. This is a big city with real crime and, and a lot of uh, mentally ill people.
0: Yeah.
4: we need and, and the police serve as a deterrent. Uh, and the mayor, uh, you know, the mayor's pop- approval ratings are, are sinking fast. Uh, they're like approaching Biden level numbers. Geez, he um, just you became know. mayor. He he just became mayor. He just took office January first. Uh, the dude hasn't even been in there for six months. Uh, he has he hasn't even seen. He's only seen a winter and part of a spring, and he's already. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's crazy. I don't know what's up with him. Uh, even the New York Post, which has been his party organ, um, is starting to turn against him and saying, "Mr. Mayor, get out of the nightclubs." Uh, You know, quit showboating, get out of the Met Gala, get out onto the streets and find out what's going on.
0: Yeah, he he seems to just love the celebrity. It's really disappointing. I want to ask you uh, to Ted about uh, politics. There's been a lot in the news about redistricting in New York. Uh, Representatives Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, both Democrats and both committee chairs, apparently will be thrown into the same district and will have to run against each other. New York's highest court at the end of the week last week threw out a redistricting map that Democrats had drawn up and then presented its own, which the Democrats hate. So it looks like the issue is heading to the federal courts. Um, As as things stand now, the Democrats thought they were going to pick up maybe as many as three seats. Now they're looking at losing one seat. Um, How does this resolve? Uh, Is there going to be some sort of an agreement? Is is the Democratic Party going to be able to come up with something that that's going to be acceptable to the courts? Or is this going to be a new congressional map that's written by the courts?
4: it's going to be a new congressional map written by mm. the courts i'm almost certain um so it's you know the party tried to put their their thumbs on the scale yeah. apparently that works for republicans in texas but not democrats in <laughs> right. new york
0: i thought um, the same thing and,
4: and <laughs> yeah so so you know i i think uh, you know look it's it's going to be a tragedy. We have the potential uh, for for Democrats. It's going to be really rough. It's it's the potential of you know how we lost Dennis Kucinich to redistricting. Yes. Um. In Ohio, uh, you know, and uh, in this case, we're talking about two uh, congressmen who bring uh, sort of disparate but equally important skills. I mean, Nadler is has you know he has all the charisma. Of a lump of lead, yes. But he's but he's insanely uh, powerful. He's a, a machine politician. Yes. He would have been comfortable in Tammany. Uh, Carol Maloney, however, is the widow of a victim of a right. of a of a deranged uh L I train shooting massacre um back in the nineties. And he she's uh you know, she's very charismatic, very popular with her constituents. You know, it's like, you know, she's one of those people that you can't help but like. Yes. And uh she's uh, you know it's it's you kind of if you're you know if you're the DNC, you don't want to lose either one.
0: Oh my gosh, yes. I gotta tell you, as a Greek American, uh the, the Greeks in in the United States don't love anybody as much as they love Carolyn Maloney. I mean, she might as well be Greek because we have her up on a pedestal as the as the queen of our community. And the idea that she's going to that, that she's going to have to fight Jerry Nadler, who is almost as popular as she is in the Greek American community, um, if only for his for his you know raw power and his ability to exert raw power. As chairman of the Judiciary Committee, this is going to be very tough for Democrats.
4: It is. It's not good. You know, it's just sort of like a whole, you know, it's just one of the, you know how like in in life, sometimes just like everything just comes up snake eyes. Yeah. And that's what the, that's what things feel like for the Democrats this year.
0: Yeah. There's literally no good news for the Democrats in any state, in any race. With The The only thing
4: they had going the only thing they had going them, sorry, was yeah. was uh, the, you know, Roe v. Wade thing. Yeah, uh, it's, right. And even that seems like it's going to be neutral. I think it'll be a wash because it's energizing the right just as much as it's yeah. uh, it's energizing the right maybe more than the left.
0: Yeah, I suspect it is. Finally, Ted, uh, you've spoken in the past about the ongoing problem with COVID in New York. Uh, we saw reports today in in both uh, the New York Times and the L.A. Times about a spike of of COVID infection rates in California that could lead to some sort of a modified lockdown again. There seems to be another rise in infection rates in New York. Uh, but while hospitalizations are up, deaths continu- continue to drop. We're down to around 300 deaths uh, daily nationwide. Uh, what are we looking at in, in New York? Is this just a temporary uh, thing? Or is it something we should be worried about?
4: I, here's what I think is going on. Uh, first of all, I, I mean, you know, as, as, a, as, an, as a cartoonist, I'm a great epidemiologist. Um, uh. I think – but I do think what's going on is basically these vaccines wear out after four months. Yeah. And the messaging from the government has been all over the place. But most people seem think that if they have three or four total, they're good. But the truth is, you know, you probably should get one every six months. Mm-hmm. Um, just period. And that should be the advice coming out of Washington. I think that's, I think immunities are waning, Uh, you know, with the weather getting warmer and people outside more, we Mm -hmm. should be seeing, you would think a decline in cases. However, to be optimistic for once, I'm gonna say, look, New York's been, uh, everything that's happened with COVID has happened to New York first. And I think what's going on here is New Yorkers are vaccinated at a higher than national average rate um so more new, you know new yorkers are on top of this they suffered the most at the beginning uh we're m- most of us everyone i know is vaccinated and boosted um people i know uh, i just got my fifth shot i know other people who have who have their fourth or or are getting their fifth shots. Mm-hmm. so i think um what what you're seeing is the future of covid which is yeah. people are going to be vaccinated it's uh people are going to get sick because getting vaccinated doesn't prevent you from getting a variant infection, right? But it's not going to kill you, right? It, you're going to be home. You're going to be miserable. It's going to suck. It's going to be an endemic disease that we live with, and I think that's you know, I mean, that's that's kind of the only outcome you can expect. I mean, people talk about the Spanish flu epidemic, a, a pandemic of 1918 to 1920. What people don't realize is that the Spanish flu did not disappear until the ni- late 1950s. Yes, and it might, it, it mutated into avian flu. Yes, um, so. It's not like, you know, We're if you're hearing this conversation, you're going to be living with COVID the rest of your life. And uh, it's just the only, so it's, but it's not going to paralyze us. And I think there's no appetite in this city for any, certainly no lockdown. I don't think we're ever going to get another lockdown. Uh, I think even mask mandates, the mayor was asked about this recently. He said, there's no plans to do it. I think the, basically the future of this is, get vaccinated, and you're going to get sick sometimes. And that's how it goes.
0: I think you're exactly right. And we will leave it there. That was the voice of Ted Rawl, award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. President Biden this week enlisted a dozen Asian countries to join a new loosely defined economic bloc meant to counter China's dominance and to reassert American influence in the region. Five years after Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from a sweeping accord that it had negotiated itself, the TPP. Biden did this despite liberal opposition at home. Meanwhile, the U.S. economy is slowing, inflation is soaring, interest rates are up, and the country is approaching the midterm elections. What issue is more important right now than the economy? We're joined by Steve Grumbine. He's founder and CEO of the nonprofit's Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action, and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. Welcome back, Steve. Steve. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, really happy to have you, Steve. And I've got so many questions for you. Before I get to interest rates and domestic economic issues, I want to ask you about this new Indo-Pacific agreement. It looks like the TPP. It smells like the TPP. Uh, What are your thoughts? Good, bad or indifferent? Is this essentially the TPP?
5: Uh, it, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's terrible on so many levels. As a person on the left, I, I recognize this is once again, you know, the U.S. Yeah. putting interests in place to try to ensure that it has access to low cost goods, low cost production, etc. Since we've gone and screwed the pooch with our Russia position, uh, we now have to kind of you know, calcify ourselves, kind of lock ourselves in uh, with someone. <laughs> Someone's got to be our business partners, yeah, right? right. Um, and so, so this, is, this is our attempt to maintain that lavishness that we have done on the backs of third world nations. And um, I don't know all the details, so I don't want to overstate and overplay my hand here, but suffice it to say, free trade is far from free usually.
0: There is so much focus today on rising interest rates and what it means for the economy and for the midterms this fall. Our understanding of interest rates is that rising rates are generally a bad thing because it increases the cost of doing business and uh, it increases the cost of consumers purchases. The thing I'm curious about is understanding more about modern monetary theory and how the theory explains the effect of higher interest rates and the federal debt. Is am I am I right to say that that in MMT, rising interest rates are not necessarily a bad thing.
5: No, no, not at all. Um, in fact, you would speak to the average MMT developer, including Warren Mosler, Randall Ray, Bill Mitchell, and Stephanie Kelton. They would be advocating for a permanent zero interest rate policy uh-huh. or a low to no interest rate policy.
0: Uh huh. You need
5: to understand the interest payments. Are on it on reserves. And, and I, this is so hard to do in like two seconds or less. <laughs> but just suffice it to say, the banking system has these things called reserves. And they're used to clear payments in the banking system from one institution to another. So you write a check, they go ahead and clear it through the other bank. And there's these things called reserves that float back and forth between the two banks. And what happens is, is that when bank A needs to acquire reserves to handle that transaction, they have to pay a certain price for reserves. Well, it yeah. previously had been zero. Right. We had kept a zero interest rate policy, and so payments just cleared. Now, all of a sudden, that they're now paying for a what is formerly a very secure transaction. Now, they're adding interest to that, and that starts- matriculating through the economy as a basic income for people who already have money. So this is one of those, the rich get richer things. So there's nothing about this that in any way, shape or form an MMTer would say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Definitely. Let's raise some interest rates. It'll be great for all. No one on the MMT side that I know of that I speak to would ever advocate for something like that.
0: Tell me a little about uh, the federal debt. Um, here's what I have written here. Uh, an MMT economist recently explained that rising interest rates uh, are actually helping to reduce the federal debt, not the deficit, but the debt. For, for example, uh, the American Rescue Plan was financed at last year's rates that were at record lows. Uh, yet today, the U.S. Treasury is collecting at a higher interest rate. So the basic math is that the Fed was borrowing at a half of a percent and is now collecting almost three percent. Is is that right? Does that make sense to you? Well, let me ask you a question. Who does the Fed
5: borrow? Well, from?
4: that's a good money. question. So who does it yeah. borrow from? Yeah, it
5: doesn't. Uh-uh. It doesn't borrow. It's a, it's a word that has no meaning. Right. And so we spend first. Right. And then we tax a little bit back. That's that's the game. It's spend first tax back. We don't tax to find money to spend. And when we don't have money, we borrow from some nefarious Chinese. Hey, can we borrow some U.S. dollars, China? I know we're in a a kind of an economic (laughs) war here, but we'd still like to borrow some U.S. dollars from you, China. It's just saying it. It's almost ridiculous. You start laughing after a second, right? (laughs) Right. So the national debt is nothing more. This is this is one of those ones where you definitely want to break out your pencil. The national debt is nothing more than the sum total of every untaxed dollar in the economy since the dawn of time. So that includes treasuries and securities and all these other things, because they're just another form of money. It's like a savings account at the Fed. So if you think about it, it's interest that has been pre-funded. They know we're going to sell this bond for six months. It's a $10,000 bond. We're charging for this much. We've already factored in the interest payments because it's it's not fluctuating. It's a specific amount for a specific bond that they purchased. So this is just a way of adding money into the economy, but it's adding it directly into the wealthiest of all people, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about it like that, The MMT perspective would always be to come back and say, interest rates are a way of literally staving off inflation and things like that. At least that's what it says on paper. But if you don't have to defend a positive interest rate, you don't have to pay interest payments on it. Get rid of the damn thing. Stop selling bonds. They don't actually finance the government. It's really a way for the rich to keep their money to have enough money to keep it going, to keep growing their bases, inflation kicks up or whatever, they can capitalize on that by getting more money through interest hikes. And so this is all smoke and mirrors led to believe the average person just goes, yeah, oh my God, we got to do this. But in reality, it's not helping at all. It's like, it's like putting leeches on you to try and solve some fever or something. It's ridiculous. Um, So no here would say
0: that. You've anticipated my next question, which is that we hear so much in the mainstream media, especially in places like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, about how the U.S. and Chinese economies are interwoven because the Chinese own so much uh, in American government bonds, right? It's over a trillion dollars. Um, so my question then to you is, does, does that matter? at all it, or or does it matter politically no, th- think about this go ahead no so imagine this right as
5: long as we're doing business with another country when that country sells goods and services to us they receive us dollars for their payment mm-hmm. so they're sitting there let's say china does a lot of manufacturing for the world which it does and the US buys a lot of Chinese products, which it does. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are sitting there with a basket full of earnings that they have done legally. They've bought a bunch, they've sold a bunch of stuff to us. And now they're sitting there with a bunch of US dollars. And they say, What do we do with all these US dollars? I, say, I don't know. I guess we could take trade some of it off on the foreign exchange market and get it back in one. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could save in another currency. Maybe we'll trade so that. But we're gonna keep doing business with the US. So rather than that Why don't we go ahead and earn a nominal interest on our already existing U.S. dollar holdings that we just made through purchases, and we'll go ahead and save them there at the Fed or earn whatever that 1%, 2%, 3% interest is on bonds. And for regular people, that does, it's not a lot of money. It's kind of like a weak bet, but when you're putting a trillion out there at 3%,
0: that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot.
5: And so they, they say, hey, it's a safe bet. Nothing's safer than a U.S. bond. And they go, so we don't actually borrow their money. What, what, what bonds, if you go back to World War II, okay? World War II, the factories were at 100% capacity. People couldn't, there was no cars to buy. There were no refrigerators. It, it was just the total economy had been put to the war machine. So, But yes. people were working round the clock, earning a lot of money. So what are they going to do with all that money that they've earned? And there's nothing for sale to purchase that is for domestics. The, the domestic economy had dried up because of this. So what they did was recognizing they didn't wanna set off a, a spiraling inflation. They went ahead and started selling war bonds. The government was already funding the war. They didn't need your money. You weren't paying for that. Right. So what did they do? They used that to take money and delay purchasing power. Okay, over five years, you'll, you'll get so much interest back. Oh, it sounds like a good investment. Let me buy some war bonds. Well, during this time period, people were not spending a bunch of money because they were all buying war bonds. Okay, It's the same thing with China. You're trying to defend a positive interest rate. China buys these bonds and so forth. it's, It's supposed to delay some sort of purchasing power. But ultimately, it's also simply a basic income for the rich. I mean, these guys already have money. You have interest rate hikes. What happens? They get more money. So you know, just just keep in mind the national debt is nothing to worry about. It's the sum total of dollars in the economy. Mm -hmm. You cut the debt, you reduce the money in our economy. That means you're in my pockets. So it's very important to remember that the the actual debt isn't really owed to anyone. These people have bought savings bonds, just like you would buy a savings bond or a CD or whatever other thing you might buy to. Pick up some spare change in three years. You want to have a safe investment for your kids, student loans or whatever. Maybe you buy some bonds. It's the same thing with China. They just have all these U.S. dollars there that they don't really spend well in China. So let's go ahead and keep them in the Fed and let's earn a nominal interest rate.
0: More than uh, 50 percent of households, Steve, are invested in the financial markets through retirement plans, IRAs, 401ks. So when we talk about the stock market not being a reality for most people, the truth is that we're, we're all affected, or most of us are affected, by this recent bear market. Um, the S&P dipped into bear market territory on Friday. There's a decline in the wealth effect as stock values slide. What can people do to protect themselves?
5: You know, I'm not a stock guy. I'm really not. Um, I, I will tell you that, you know, my, my expertise is not. In- not in microeconomics uh-huh. in terms of giving investment advice. Sure, um, but you know, I would I would say that you know a bond has a set yield. You know what the interest is. If you're looking to save something, go into very very safe investments that have very low volatility during this bear slide. I would go after. I would pick bonds. I would pick you know buy a bond that has you know two three percent and know that I'm going to get that two three percent at the end. That would be how I would approach it if, if I was looking for a safe bet. Yes. That would be what I would do. Yeah. But I'm not an investment guy, so don't take anything I say. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not my expertise. No
0: problem. Uh during the pandemic, many people took early retirement and now many may be reconsidering this as they don't feel so wealthy after all. This has been this has been in all the mainstream uh, outlets uh, We've seen it at CNN and the Washington Post, the Times, Barrons, the Journal, everywhere. Uh, The Fed is raising interest rates to slow down the economy. Um, The stock market—you know—people look at the stock market to to sort of do the work to to protect them to hedge against inflation. Um, What's your view on how the Fed is handling interest rates right now? Are you worried that they may overdo the rate hikes and and maybe further exacerbate a recession
5: absolutely mm. in fact i think all indicators are there if you listen to the the folks speaking from the fed including jerome powell all of them are hearkening back to volcker times yes um and paul volcker famously destroyed the economy to save the economy yes. and it, you can just hear the oxymoron on there right I mean, this this guy is the worst neoliberal, one of them up there with Hayek and Friedman, horrible, evil bastard that really, really killed a lot of people, should never be celebrated and should only be defecated on. <laughs> I mean, this guy really, <laughs> truly set the stage for awful things to come in Jerome Palace. He worships at the altar of uh, of uh, Paul, Paul Volcker. So I, I think it's very important to realize that this is a monetarist extension, the libertarian belief system. This is the worst possible approach to doing all of this stuff. Um, and it is going to create a lot of pain and suffering as they hike those rates up. I, I just spoke to Randall Ray, who's an economist, uh, MMT economist the other day, and there's some differences of opinion um, with him and Warren Mosler on this. But one of the things that he said straight up was that you know, In order for interest rates to ever have a, the kind of uh, slowing of the economy that they want, they would need to jack rates up so high that people simply didn't go get credit anymore. Wow. They, they just simply didn't do it. But the truth is, is that they've shown that high interest rates don't really stop people from buying. No, that's and, true. In fact, the areas, if you look at the economy for inflation, are not really about borrowing. I mean, you don't borrow to go to dinner usually most people don't borrow to go to the movie theater or whatever it's the entertainment it's that kind of uh you know out there social stuff that people are spending money on that is there's just not enough people working in it there's not enough whatever goods and services out there for it and so the prices are going up there right but so raising interest rates what is that actually impacting Right. I mean, it, what are you talking about? What kind of loans that you're taking money out for w- w- would have anything to do with it? It, it? It's, 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 it's attacking the wrong problem. It, it's attacking a supply issue with supply chains, with a monetary operation. And the two are not related in any way, shape or form. Um, the only difference is there'll be a lot of pain for people. And um, you know, they're, they're happy about that. Cause you've seen every time there's a downturn in the economy, The rich buy things, pennies on the dollar. As people go bankrupt and lose everything, they retrench and then start the cycle all over again. Yes. You know, if you go to the arcade and you see that game where you drop a quarter in the thing and it's got that ledge that keeps pushing the money off of the the thing, a couple layers. That's what it's like every time you drop that coin down and all of a sudden it totally changes the environment each time. And this, this is what they do. Each time they retrench, you see that machine go and just crush us all. That's that's my fear. That is my fear um, is that, you know, we have three ways of getting money into the economy. One is federal spending. Mm -hmm. Well, we cut the spigot off on federal spending. Sure. Two is being a net importer. I mean, a net exporter. Well, we're clearly not not going to happen. So that leaves us with one other area, and that's private debt which now all of a sudden they're going to jack the price of debt up because guess what happened during the pandemic? People paid off their debt. There were people that were paying down credit cards during that time period. When they weren't out there running on the roads and stuff, they had a little bit of money. They paid off debt. So what the government is seeing is, hey, in our three sectors, there's private debt available for us to blow up again. So they're going to put the onus on us to go into debt to keep the economy going. And that is that's that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Steve Grumbine. Steve is a founder or the founder and CEO of the nonprofits, Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. And he's host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. One last break, and then we're going to come back with some closing thoughts. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and now I'm here with my colleague, Ray Valencia. Hello. Ray is the producer of the show, and she's a Sputnik news analyst. Ray, I wanted to leave our listeners with a few updates and a few notes about tomorrow. First, tomorrow is primary election day in Georgia, Alabama, and Arkansas. Uh, We're going to be following the Georgia Senate race very closely, of course, where Herschel Walker is expected to win the Republican nomination to run against Senator Raphael Warnick and the Georgia governor's race, where Governor Brian Kemp appears to be holding off a challenge Mm -hmm. from Donald Trump's handpicked candidate, David Perdue. A very interesting race is shaping up in the uh, for the Alabama Senate seat on the Republican side where Trump endorsed former Congressman Mo Brooks, Mm. then unendorsed him and endorsed former congressional aide Katie Britt. Brooks sank like a rock in the polls after Trump pulled the uh, endorsement. But then he came surging back. And now it looks like he and Britt are going to have to go to a runoff. We'll see how things play out tomorrow. And in Arkansas, former Trump White House spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders is likely to win the Republican nomination for governor. She's running against a former radio talk show host host who was fired for refusing to get a COVID vaccine. What are your thoughts as as we go into these races tomorrow?
3: Well, George is the one I'm really watching. It's it's crazy. We've been talking about Herschel Walker, yeah. right? And uh I'm looking at the Early turnout, record turnout, record over, turnout. Yeah, two hundred and thirty-nine percent turn over, uh, record turnout over twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. and another one hundred and sixty percent record turnout over twenty twenty,
0: which was a presidential year. That was
3: a presidential. So I'm really looking at the midterm. I mean, that's really big over the last yeah. midterm, right? Yeah, and I agree. Uh, a lot of Democrats are voting. That I mean, there were registered Republicans or Democrats, and it's an open primary in Georgia. So yeah. Democrats can vote. And I'm wondering if they're re- voting on the Republican ticket to help Herschel Walker win because, you know, if Herschel Walker wins, it's going to help the Democrats, at least it seems to me. Well, I think
0: it is going to help the Democrats. Uh, you know, I read something very interesting over the weekend about Georgia. You know, Georgia has this tradition called souls to the polls, mm. and it's where um, they'll have uh, buses at churches, mostly African-American churches. And when church is finished on Sunday before the election, you get on the bus and they take you to uh, the the polling place to do early voting. Well, Republicans uh, outlawed souls to the polls. So what they've done now is uh, they're they're helping they're helping voters uh, go to the polls on Saturdays or on Saturday before the election and Friday before the election, and that has helped to drive these numbers of early voters up. Uh, apparently, it it backfired on those who wanted to try to drive uh voting numbers down.
3: Yeah, and isn't it interesting when you take something away from people, doesn't that create an incentive? Yeah.
0: Everybody's you know? always looking to build a better mousetrap. <laughs> That's right. And uh it looks yeah. like they've they've done that. Now there was a there was an interview over the weekend with a with a Georgia political analyst and I've never seen anybody beat up Herschel Walker like she did. And she's like, look, if Herschel Walker wins this is a gift to the Democrats. And mm-hmm. it's a gift To the Democrats, because Raphael Warnock is popular. He is a senator who's focused on constituent services. And he can
3: debate, and Herschel Walker is not going to debate.
0: Well, Herschel Walker's, like, got brain damage.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I have not seen a successful campaign on a senatorial level where you run your campaign from the bunker. Right. You know, it's just not going to work.
0: No, no. If you're far ahead in the polls, sure. Because you don't want to give your underfinanced, underexposed opponents a chance to pull you down.
3: Yeah, but that but the only thing works is, if you're on the 11th hour. But if you've got this whole well, it, season in of It works you. if
0: you're 50 percentage <laughs> yeah, points yes. ahead of everybody yeah, yeah. else like he is now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work in a general election. Mm-mm. It doesn't work. Mm-mm. And, you know, she she was saying in this interview yesterday on one of the Sunday morning shows that this is a guy who has beaten his wife. It's a guy who's beaten up cops. It's a guy who has lied about his education. He's lied about uh, the the entrepreneurial positions that he's had.
3: And that's what all the ads that are going to
0: roll yeah.
3: are going to say.
0: Right. He's going to spend from now until November defending himself rather than getting the the issues out there. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I think she's right that. Herschel Walker being the Republican nominee, which is what Donald Trump demanded, is going to be a gift to the Democrats.
3: Yeah, again, I agree with Ted. I think that uh, the whole Trump thing really invigorated the Republican Party. Yeah. But there's a half-life to how much influence the Trump endorsement is going to have as we move into the general election. Yeah. I just think there's going to be overwhelming issues that are going to override that.
0: Let me know what you think about uh about Alabama. I mean, nobody in the House of Representatives was more pro-Trump than Mo Brooks. And Trump just screwed him by by pulling the endorsement.
3: Yeah. And, what is this? Like he mangles the endorsement. Sometimes he say, well, I'm going to, you know, it's OK if that other guy wins, too, or I'm going to withdraw this endorsement and endorse the other man. And yeah. And it's so last minute. Oh, it yeah, just it's, seems it's so schizophrenic. Good. I it's, don't it's know. Not good. How and now
0: they're not even speaking. So even if Mo Brooks wins, and Mo, Mo Brooks is is kind of a Paul Gosar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know Gates Green, Bobert kind of member of the House, it's not going to be any gift for the Democrats. No, but not it at will all. be embarrassing to Trump, even if Brooks continues to vote the way a president Trump would want him to vote. Yeah. We're getting a little short on time, so I want to tell you about a new book that's coming out day after tomorrow. Former White House aide uh, Kellyanne Conway has a new book coming out on Wednesday called Here's the Deal, a memoir. There's virtually no criticism of Donald Trump, but Conway pretty much hates everybody else or hated everybody else in the White House, especially Jared Kushner. Of Kushner, here's what she says, quote, there was no subject he considered beyond his expertise criminal justice reform, Middle East peace, the southern border, the northern border, veterans and opioids, big tech and small business. If Martians attacked, uh, he would have very happily added them to his ever bulging portfolio. He'd have made sure you knew he'd exiled the Martians to Uranus and insisted that he didn't care who got credit for it. He misread the Constitution in one crucial respect, thinking that all power not given to the federal government was instead reserved for him. Unquote. There's one revelation in the book that seems to have everybody just shaking their heads. Um, Conway says that President Trump, at the very end of his term, offered her a pardon. She said that she responded, do you know something I don't? Why would I I need a pardon? And Trump replied, because they go after everyone, honey. And you're going to get a turn. (laughs) We are going to have to leave it there. Thank you to our guests, Peter Kuznick, Mark Schmoyle. Ted Rawl and Steve Grumbine. Thank you to Ryan, Dimitri, Andre, Saul, and, well, not Saul anymore. Thanks to everybody else and the entire Sputnik News team. Thank you to our very talented Ray Valencia. On behalf of Michelle Witte, I'm John Kiriakou saying goodbye, everybody, and thanks for listening.
3: Bye-bye.